Hello, welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, and I'm your host today. The um, it's March twelfth, twenty twenty one, and so we're still in uh, three different places. We're in Jeremiah, we're in Romans, and we're in John. <clears throat> and it's that means if it's Jeremiah, it must be Lent. And so here we are in Jeremiah eleven one to eight and verses fourteen to twenty, and it's the Lord speaking to Jeremiah and saying, "Go prepare and speak to the people." They need to hear some things, and what they need to hear is God's continuing complaint against them. And so what he is getting at this time is he goes, he says, go and tell the people to hear the words of the covenant. And then I'm reminding you of who you are and how we got where we are today and why you're part of um, my sacred people and my chosen people. And so he sends Jeremiah to go and speak with the people and tell them that Look, we're in covenant together, and I'm going to remind you of that. And this is the one thing that we need to always keep in mind is that covenant relationship we have with him. And so he's reminding them of the covenant that they had when he brought them out of uh, Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so he, he says that, uh, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. Remember, I told you that, that the thing that they take great pride in, although they blew it shortly after that, was is that their forefathers initially said, we will do and we will listen. And so there's this, this commitment to doing, which is a commitment to believing in a lot of ways. It's a commitment to trusting God that whatever he command would be the best for them. And then they're committing to hear it after that. And then he goes on to say that hear the words of the covenant and do them. So he, God puts it in the opposite order here. He says, I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. And remember, from the beginning of this whole thing, the, the Genesis all the way through, obeying the voice is a really important thing. Jesus is going to say that in chapter 10 in the book of John, when he talks about the sheep listening to his voice, they will not listen to the voice of another. And that's an important thing, is, is to listen to the voice of the Lord, but it's equally important to obey the voice of the Lord. Those two things are not the same. And so he's bringing this complaint against them for what they've done. They've not listened and they've not obeyed. They've not done the things that their fathers said they would do. And so he's not going to treat them in the same way, in the same benevolent way that he treated their fathers. And so he makes the complaint against them. And Jeremiah says, you know, the Lord tells him that, he's cut, that they're cut off, that he is going to do this work. And then Jeremiah says, O Lord of hosts who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. And so Jeremiah is aligning himself here with God, and he sees the sin in the people. He sees the way that they have dealt treacherously with God by um, hedging their bets, by making worship to different gods all along and, and acting as though he were no real god, no more so than any of the other gods that they're giving worship to at that time. And so Jeremiah says, I, I don't see any hope here. It's so bad that it, that it breaks Jeremiah's heart. And he even says, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. And I've told you this before, Abraham Joshua Heschel talks about this, this two... Um, pronged 
alignment that a prophet has to have. He has to align himself with God, see things the way God sees them in order that he can accurately and adequately communicate with the people, not making the word too soft and not making it too hard either. But at the same time, he's to align himself with the people because he is one of them in the same way that the writer of Hebrews talks about um, the high priest being one of us, being another human who, for whom sacrifices need to be made as well because he is a sinner like us. And so Jeremiah the prophet here has just given up hope and he aligns himself with God. But then again, he's got to have a heart for the people and we'll see throughout the book of Jeremiah that he does. He never abandons the people, but here he's just given up hope in, in the possibility of repentance and therefore redemption in that. And in the um, John passage, in that gospel, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, which includes a lot of the, um, the Pharisees at this point. And, and it's, they make an odd statement in the beginning of this lesson, which is John eight thirty three to 47. We are offspring of Abraham and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? I'm sorry, you're the offspring of Abraham and you've never been enslaved to anyone? Oh, huh. Did you forget the whole Egypt thing? Did you forget the Babylonian exile? Did you forget all these things when you actually were, when you had vassal kings for Egypt and everything else? And so they say, how is it that you shall say, we, you say you will become free? And Jesus is speaking, obviously, here of, of sin and death not of, of that kind of physical enslavement, but it's no less an enslavement. And Jesus answers, Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's talking about that kind of freedom. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And it's an interesting thing the way he says this here. Listen to the verbs. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. And here he has said you're the offspring of Abraham. And so they had reason to believe that what they were talking, what he was talking about was Abraham, but he was clearly not. And they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're not doing the works your father did. It's a ringing condemnation. It's the same kind of condemnation that, that Jeremiah is giving against the people of his time. You're not doing the works your fathers did. You're not listening and obeying my voice as they did, even though they were imperfect, certainly, in that. But they're not doing that. And so Jesus says that, that you would be doing what Abraham did if he were truly your father. And then they come out with this one. And you know, I'll tell you where, the, where I believe this is coming from. They said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Well, we know that Jesus actually has one father in the most literal way possible. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But what they're getting at there when they say we were not born of sexual immorality, what they're saying there is a veiled reference to the rumor that went around at the time of Jesus. And we know that from other historians that, that Jesus was the product of a relationship between Mary and a Roman soldier. Or, at very best, that she got pregnant before the marriage occurred. And so they're, they're accusing him of something here, and that is not being actually 
a, a natural-born legitimate child. They're accusing him of being illegitimate when they say that. And, and then Jesus slams into that one without saying anything directly about it. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then he goes on to say, you're the, of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being there and having Jesus say that? That you're of your father the devil and you're just like him? You're a murderer who doesn't stand in the truth and you're a liar? He says, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. And which of you convicts me of sin? And they don't have a response to that. But he tells them straight up, you're not of God. You couldn't imagine saying something more offensive to a group of Jewish people than you are not of God. You won't hear what I have to say because you're not of God. It, it's, you know, I, you can hear people say that in certain parts of the church from time to time. Frankly, I've, I've had prophetic people say that, not necessarily to me, but to other people, that people who believe they have a prophetic gift, I've heard them make the comment to other people that, well, you just can't hear what I have to say because you're not of God. If you won't receive the things that I say, then you're not of God. And it's offensive in the extreme, but here Jesus is saying it after having done and proven exactly who he is. And so there's got to be a part of every person there that receives that as, I don't know how to deal with that exactly, because he has authenticated himself as somebody who is at least a true prophet and a true teacher. And so for him to claim that he has truth, well, we've already acknowledged that. So now how are we going to deal with the statement that he just made in condemnation of us? And it's, it's, you can see the, the provocation. You can feel it in those words, how they would receive that and, and how they would indeed be ready to kill him for having said things like that but because they're, he's calling them illegitimate children of Abraham. It's a powerful thing, and so he's trying to convict them. This is not just an argument Jesus is having with them. He's proven everything that he needs to prove to be able to say these kinds of words, and he's speaking here in a, in a powerfully prophetic voice, just in the same ways that Jeremiah did, except Jeremiah had to preface his remarks by saying, Thus says the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that, but he did say it because he said, I speak the words that I hear my Father speaking. And he does the things that the Father does, and he speaks the words the Father tells him to speak, and he's faithful in speaking those words. Paul, remember, has been telling us about this, this whole nature. Yesterday he was talking about the nature of, of the, the redemption of Jesus in light of the sin of Adam and how much more grace abounds because sin abounded even more more so than the sin of Adam. And so we've piled sin upon sin, and Jesus' grace comes, and his righteousness is imputed to us, and so his righteousness covers many, 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 many sins and brings life. And, and so he continues to do that. He first has to address the potential error that's in there, right? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. It's not that there's a limitation on the amount of righteousness or amount of grace that there is, but however, if we have been saved by grace, then we need to walk in that grace, not walk in the sin. 
Because he says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? And he speaks about the whole baptism of Jesus and the baptism of, of us. And in the, in the Anglican tradition, it's less sort of obvious and it's certainly a lot, a lot less graphic because in, in uh, many churches where you do immersion baptism, then it's being said to you as you go down, you're dying to sin and you're rising to life in Christ as you come back out of the water. And so that's the image that Paul is giving there. So it's clearly that's the way baptism actually happened at that time. And he said, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we're to be changed. We're to be transformed is the word Paul's going to use in about six chapters that we're not to conform to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Paul goes on to say that, that the old self has been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin because that the intention is, is, is that we, were, we buried the old man when we went into the waters of baptism and we came up, we came up a new man, new woman. And, and so he speaks about that whole thing. If we have died with Christ, then we believe we will also live with him. And it's appointed for a man only to die once. And so Jesus has already died the one time. And so death no longer has dominion over him because death claimed him as a victim. And then the Father raised him from that death to life. And death no longer has a claim on him. And he's saying the same is to be true in you with respect to sin and respect to the old person. That you're no longer slaves to sin. In fact, you're to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Perhaps today is a good time to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. That, that there would be less of us, that old person, and more of him every single day that we might hear and see and obey.